Yeah, young ones, you can follow Miss Judy to the back. Looks like that's already happening. Um, Acts 17, 10 through 15 is where we're going to be. The title of my message this morning is Encountering the Real Jesus. We have a, we have a personal God and we can know Him. Um, let me open with a word of prayer also uh, and ask the Lord to, to just um, have His way this morning with, with myself and with, with all of us, okay? Let me just open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank You for this time as well. Thank You for each one that's here this morning. Father, thank You for the Sunday School Hour and those that ministered to us from Your Word. Thank you for the ministry of music, uh, for Jordan and, and Brendan and Adriana and Tracy, Father. What a joy it is to sing praises to our Savior. Father, uh, thank you for your word, and uh, thank you for uh, believers around the world, Father, and uh, thank you for the opportunities we have to minister to them and to pray for them. Help us to be faithful to do so. Father, we ask uh, that you'd have your way now in, in this time. Maybe we have uh, 40 minutes, maybe 50 minutes here, Father. And that's all we have this week um, together in, in this setting, Father. So I pray that you would just uh, do a wonderful thing this morning. Draw us closer to yourself. If there's one here that is yet to trust Jesus, maybe today would be that day. If there's some that have confusion about their faith, Father, clear up that confusion. Help Jesus to shine brightly. Uh, and Father, I, I want that to be the case, that Jesus would be lifted up high and exalted through what's proclaimed. So, Father, keep me from saying anything I should not say. May you be pleased with what's proclaimed in our response to it. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Encountering the real Jesus. You know, in this world, it is possible to encounter antichrist. John, when he writes 1 John, he says many antichrists have gone out into the world. It's also possible in this world, in the world we live in, to, to encounter false Christs, false Christs. Jesus. It's in 2 Corinthians 11.4, uh, Paul says, if someone comes to you and preaches another Jesus, people, there's people that preach another Jesus other than the real Jesus. Hey, But there's only one Jesus. There's only one Jesus. And that's what I want to talk about today, encountering the real Jesus. Uh, in the 70s, when I was a young guy, in my early teens, there was a show on TV I like to watch from time to time called To Tell the Truth. And you might be familiar with that. Um, and if you're not, I'll explain it to you. There'd be three contestants. One of them would be the real person, the real Patrick Cross, and there'd be two people pretending to be Patrick Cross. And the, the, the host would say, uh, Patrick Cross is a pastor, and he served in Ireland, and he was involved with these things, and he would describe Patrick Cross's life. And then the other two contestants would kind of pretend like they were actually Patrick Cross, and they'd all say, I am Patrick Cross. I am Patrick Cross. I am Patrick Cross. They'd each say that. And there were four panelists that were like semi-famous people, and they would ask these three contestants questions, trying to determine which one was the real Patrick Cross. And at the end of the show, the host would say, would the real Patrick Cross please stand up? I love that show. I still love it. I don't know why. <laughs> it's so interesting to hear these, these personal stories of people's lives that you just wouldn't normally know. But um, would the real Patrick Cross Please stand up. <laughs> um, if you were to ask folks, and um, maybe you have, I know I have, about Jesus, you'd find out that people have some very different ideas about who Jesus is. Not all of them are the same, right? Uh, 
the Muslims teach in the Quran that Jesus was a great prophet of God who never lied, but they would reject the idea that Jesus is God incarnate. They would reject that. People have a lot of ideas about Jesus. So this morning in the message, I want us to encounter the real Jesus. It'd be like if I was going to say at the end of this message, would the real Jesus please stand up? And I'd like that to happen for you in this text and through the things that I'm sharing with you this morning. And I hope as brothers and sisters of Christ, we'd be encouraged that we haven't missed it. We've trusted in the real personal Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, if you have yet to trust Christ, maybe you trust him this morning. So discovering or encountering the real or the biblical Jesus. In youth group, we have a, we have a, a, a theme verse for North Valley Bible Church's youth group, Psalm 119, verse 18. Josh, can you put it up there for us? I don't have a clicker this morning, so I'm motioning to Josh. And it's open my eyes, the psalmist says, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. The word law, they're actually, the, the psalmist is referring to the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, and he's saying that I might behold wonderful things from your word. Open my eyes that I might see wonderful things from your word. That's our theme verse for youth group. Well, there are many wonderful things to discover in or on or within the pages of the Bible that you have in your hand. There are many wonderful things to discover. We can discover historical facts, but those historical facts also have present-day implications. Whatever things were written in the past were written for our learning, we learn in the New Testament. So there's wonderful historical facts, accurate history. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning, this morning with regard to Genesis. There's beautiful poetry to discover. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. The birds in the early 60s, I don't know if you're familiar with the birds, it was a rock group, wrote that song, and they, I don't know if they plagiarized, they, hopefully they gave credit to the word of God. To everything there is a season. Turn, turn, turn. And they went on to talk about that, right? <laughs> um but it, but that is beautiful poetry. When you read those words, when I, I can remember reading those words for the first time and thinking, "Wow, is that just beautiful?" And I think I've heard that before. You know, um, other people think it's beautiful as well. There's deep theology to be discovered on the pages of your Bible. Jesus said in John ten thirty, "I and my Father are one." You know, the Jews were not confused about what he was saying. Because right after that, they pick up stones to stone him. And he says, for which of these miracles are you going to stone me? And they say, we're not stoning you for any of that. But because you, you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus is God. The real Jesus is God. God incarnate. The Jews were not confused about that. People today get confused about that. Jesus is God. Amen. Amen. Um. So there's deep theology. Jesus says to his disciples when, 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 when they say, show us the Father and it would be enough for us. Philip, I think, says that in, in John uh, 14, 9. And Jesus says to him, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. That, that's deep theology, hey? And then John, the apostle, writes in John chapter 1, in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And your mind goes, wow, just stop on that. And some people say, 
and the Word was a God. Well, that's not the real Jesus. No, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God of very God. There's only one God. So there's deep theology to be discovered on the pages of your Bible. And you can discover that your Bible is the Word of God. That's one of the first things I discovered when I started reading the Bible for myself. I discovered that what I'm holding in my hand, I didn't get very far in the book of Genesis, maybe three or four pages, and I realized I'm reading something very unique. This is, this is not man's words. It exposed me, right? It, it just laid me open. It, it, was, it was like looking in a mirror, and there was a big pile of luck, yuck looking back at me. This is the Word of God. You can discover when you read the pages of your Bible that this is the very Word of God. And it has power. Peter refers to the Word of God in this way, as the you were born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God in 1 Peter 1.7, or 1 Peter 1.23, I'm sorry. And we can discover how the world came to be. We talked about that this morning. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We can discover how the world came to be. Wonderful things we can discover. And we can discover why the world is as it is, right? Why is the world such a mess? Why is it I fix my car and next week I'm fixing it again? Why is it I hoe my garden and next, well, two days later, I'm hoeing it again, Right? Why is the world is as it is? Sickness and death and suffering and anguish and misery. And you read Romans 3.23 and it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin entered the world. That's why the world is as it is. That's the world we live in. Uh, Paul writes in Romans 8.20 that the creation was subject to futility. Futility. Just this, oh, this burdensome feeling we have about why are things the way they are. You get to verse 22, and he says the whole creation groans. And we groan. We groan inwardly. Why do things have to be this way? There's wonderful things to discover on the pages of the Bible. You know, people tend to blame God for every bad thing and praise themselves for every good thing that happens, right? If something bad happens, God did that. And if something good happens, boy, aren't we great. We, we, we really figured that out. But it's the opposite. That's the lie of the enemy, right? It's the opposite. For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Every good gift comes down from the Father of heavenly lights. God is good. Every good thing that you have is a gift from God. The yuck, that's us, you guys. That's us. We're responsible. We live in a fallen world. There's wonderful things to discover in the world of God. And we can discover where all this is heading as we look at prophecy and things yet to come. And we can discover who we truly are. I mentioned that. It was like looking in a mirror for me. You can discover in the Word of God who you truly are. Not who you pretend to be. Not who you're hoping you'll be someday. But who you truly are right now. When you look into the Word of God, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, Hebrews 4.12. Able to divide the very soul and spirit, the joints and marrow. It cuts us. It exposes us. It reveals us. To us, you look into the Word of God and realize, for all of sin falls short of the glory of God, and you have to say, yep, me too. That's just one verse, right? Just one verse. The Word of God 
helps us to understand who we truly are and why we're here. Why we're here. We're here, to, we're here to honor and glorify God. Now, if God were man in the sense of a human like we are, I'm not speaking of Jesus, he wouldn't be worthy of that, right? He would fall short of that. But God is holy and pure and he's worthy. And Jesus is worthy of all glory and honor and praise because he's perfect. And he can receive that without it affecting his holiness. We couldn't. How many uh, superstars do you know that are able to handle superstardom without falling apart? I don't think there's any, right? Very few. It's difficult. We can't handle it. But God is God can, and He's worthy of it. And we can discover God's love for us. While we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Okay? He didn't wait for you to get good enough. You weren't even born yet when Christ died, right? He didn't wait for you to clean your life up. Well, yet a sinner, Christ died for you, died for me. Wonderful things we can discover in the Word of God. And it's on the pages of the Bible that you can learn of the real Jesus. You can encounter the real Jesus. And that's the thrust of the message I have for you this morning. That's what I want to speak about today, encountering the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus says to some people that are questioning him about some things, he says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that testify of me. When you look into the Bible, you should see Jesus from front to back. You should just see Jesus all over the place. One, one of the greatest joys of my early Christian life when I first got saved was to be reading in the Old Testament and going, oh my goodness, that's Jesus. Oh my goodness, that's Jesus. Wow, that's Jesus. It was one of the greatest joys of my early Christian life. When you look in your Bible, you should see Jesus. In these, these six verses, verse 10 through 15, let's look at them again. I think there are three things we are to understand. It says, The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. I think we are to understand from that and the closing verse that, that Patrick so accurately mentioned. It's like a, They're like bookends, right? Uh, verse 14 and 15. Now immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible. They left. There are these bookends. I think we are to understand from that that the church is to be involved with the advance of the gospel. The whole church. Paul's out there and he's preaching and Silas is preaching, but the whole church is involved here. The whole church is, should, is to be involved with the advance of the gospel, to be praying about it, to be concerned for it, to be involved with it. Paul is a missionary sent by uh, the church at Antioch, right? And, and that church is involved. I'm, I'm confident they are praying for him. Second thing I think we should understand as we look at these six verses is from verse 11, and that's probably the verse, if you followed along as Patrick read, that's probably the verse your eyes centered on, and you stayed stuck there a minute because it is what I stayed stuck on. Now these things were more no now these were more noble-minded rather than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Wow. What what a verse. That verse preaches. That verse preaches a message all by itself, okay? It's powerful. 
I think we're to understand, the second thing that I think we're to understand is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is consistent with the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ that was to come, the long-awaited Savior, and he lives. And he's the same Jesus yesterday, today, and forever. We're to understand that. The third thing I think we're to understand comes from the close of, of these verses. There's some things to say with regard to verse 12, but in verse 13 and 14 it says, But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Do you know these guys traveled 40 to 45 miles to do this? I think the third thing that we are to understand is that opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ can be very, very, very strong. But it only serves to advance the gospel. I think we're to understand those three things. But that's not the thing I'm going to preach on this morning. Those are elements of the things we are to understand. I want to talk about encountering the real Jesus. Encountering the real Jesus. Because as I looked at verse 10 of chapter 17, I started to ask some questions. Verse 10, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now, if you're just reading this for the first time, you haven't been here with us through the book of Acts, or you haven't been in the book of Acts for a while, and you, your mind just hasn't been there all week, your mind's going to go, why are we here at this point? In the narrative. In Acts 17, begins with them at Thessalonica. There are these, these, these Jewish uh, unbelievers that stir up a fake riot in Acts 17.5. And they have to leave by night. That's because there's a danger of physical harm. But why did they have to leave? They had to leave because there's strong opposition to the gospel. There are reasons people reject the gospel. That could be a message all by itself too, right? Talking about the reasons why people reject the gospel. The Bible gives us some answers to that. You, Jesus says you won't believe in me be, because you love your sin, basically, is what he tells some folks. Because your sin is what you're cherishing. You won't come to me. You refuse to come to me because you're holding on to your sin. That's a reason people reject the gospel. But they go into the synagogue, it says, in verse 10. They went into the synagogue of the Jews in Berea, to me, is the place of greatest conflict, isn't it? That's where they, every time they go into the synagogue, they run into these Jews that, we don't like this. We don't like this Jesus you're preaching. We don't think he's our Messiah. We don't want to hear that. And that's what starts the chaos. They go into the place of greatest conflict, and that tells me that there's no backing down. There's no retreat for the church. Eh? The world doesn't want to hear the message necessarily, but that doesn't mean we ought to back down with the message. We ought not to change it, soften it, distort it. It's an abrasive message to tell someone, you're a sinner, you need a Savior, there's only one, you can't save yourself, and that Savior is Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, who died on a cross 2,000 years ago. You need Him. That's an abrasive message. It's an abrasive message, but we ought not to back down from it. There should be no retreat with regard to it. They come into a new place and a new audience and proclaim the same message. 
The same Jesus. They don't change the message or its content. So, what motivates these men? That's the question I arrive at. What motivates them? What should motivate us? It's the same thing that should motivate us, and that is that they haven't encountered the real Jesus. What gives us boldness in witnessing? What gives me boldness to stand up before you today and preach anything? The guy, when I was a kid, couldn't stand in front of a classroom and say, my name is Dan, at the beginning of the year. This is the last thing in my natural self that I would want to be doing, is standing before a bunch of people, some of you I just met today, and proclaim anything, to say my name. What gives that boldness? What, what would motivate me to do that? What mo it's the same thing that motivates these men. It's the love of Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, For the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ compels us. He's a changed man, Paul is. I'm a changed man. The same thing that motivated Paul and Silas is the same thing that ought to motivate us. It's the love of Christ that compels us. It sets us free. Love sets us free from the fear of man, from the fear of bondage, from the fear of, of shame and guilt and all of that stuff. It just sets us free. He says, for the love of Christ compels us. Jesus is the primary mover here, hey? It's the real Jesus who is, who is motivating these believers to operate the way they are. Motivates his church to advance the gospel. You know, when, when those brothers uh, or brethren, there might have been some women involved, when the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night, I'm thinking there's some risk for them, right? If they get caught being kind to Paul and Silas, there's some danger. They don't care. I mean, I'm sure they care, but they're more concerned about taking care of Paul, taking care of Silas, advancing the gospel. That's their main focus. Now, chapter 17, this whole chapter, we're in Thess we were in Thessalonica last week. We're in Berea today. Next week, we'll be in Athens. I'm kind of jealous. <laughs> what a beautiful, beautiful message Paul gives in Athens there. But um, chapter 17 is the narrative of different reactions to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some reject it strongly, as they did in Thessalonica. Some receive it warmly, examining what they hear. That's the Bereans. And others are going to ridicule and mock what they hear, but they never change the message. Because Paul and Silas and these other believers have encountered Jesus, it's he that is what motivates them to stay focused on the gospel. Now, that's a simple point. The apostle Paul had an encounter with the real Jesus, with the living Savior. Paul had been opposed to the gospel opposed to the followers of Jesus, opposed to Jesus, opposed to the message of the cross. He, he thought, I am, I am against what? It's, it's in the same book that Luke writes, Acts chapter 9, uh, when, when, he, when he writes that first verse, um, Acts 9.1. Now Saul, this is Paul, the apostle Paul, before he's the apostle Paul, now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Still breathing. This is, this is the Apostle Paul. Opposed to Jesus. But he encounters, he has an encounter with the real Jesus. He encountered the risen Lord. And Jesus says to him, why are you persecuting me? Paul's persecuting the church and Jesus takes great personal offense at that. Persecution of the church is a persecution of Jesus. Why are you persecuting me? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me and 
Saul, who becomes Paul, asks the phenomenal question, who are you, Lord? He's going to have a personal encounter with the real Jesus. And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And he, in another account of that, Paul says that Jesus said to him, you find it hard to kick against the goads. Paul had been kicking against this gospel message. He'd been, he'd been exposed to it at the stoning of Stephen, and ever since then he's been kicking against it and kicking against it and kicking against it. And now the dam's going to break, and he's going to trust Jesus as Savior, and he's going to get to this point where he's going to write something like this. For the love of Christ compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all. Because we're convinced that one died for all. That's why the love of Christ compels us. One died for all. And that one is Jesus. That's the real Jesus. Paul is a new creation in Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Which he's going to write in another place is the hope of glory, which is Christ in you. So he no longer looks at anyone from a worldly point of view. We ought not to either. And Silas is there with Paul. And he has to be slipped out at night as well. Silas had an encounter with the same Jesus, but not in the same way. It wasn't the same way. And these ones that are called the brethren, other believers that sent them away by night, they had an encounter with Jesus, but not in the same way. It was, it was through the word preached or the word read, right? Same way I had an encounter with Jesus. Jesus said to Doubting Thomas, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who have not seen and yet have believed. I can remember reading that for the first time and saying, That's me. Jesus is talking about me. Blessed is me because I didn't see him, but I believed. I had an encounter with the real Jesus. The second point here, I'm talking about having an encounter with the real Jesus. It's the real Jesus who these Bereans meet when they examine the Scriptures. That's the second point. The Jesus they, they encounter in the New Testament era, the Jesus Paul and Silas preached is the same Jesus we encounter in the New Testament today. It's the same Jesus we proclaim at North Valley Bible Church. Again, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this same Jesus stands up to Old Testament examination. He is the eternal Son of God. It's not only him who motivates Paul and Silas and ought to motivate every believer. It's him who they meet when they examine the Scriptures. It says in verse 11, Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. Obviously, Luke is making a comparison, isn't he? He's saying, I, I'm, I observed these believers in Berea, or someone told him about how it went there, and the, the believers that were in Thessalonica, or the Jews in Thessalonica, rather, and I observed the Jews in Berea, and the Jews in Berea were more noble-minded. And then he goes on to describe what he means by that. He, he, he makes the contrast for us. The difference is in the frame of mind. That's the only way I can think of it. It's in, the, in their actions, in their responses, as they encounter information about Jesus Christ. He tells of, he tells of three things the Bereans 
did that made them more noble-minded than the unbelieving Jews of Thessalonica. They received the word, they examined the word, and they believed the word. Those three things made them more noble-minded than, than the unbelieving Jews of Thessalonica. They received the word, they examined the word, and they believed the word. They received it. That word, they received the word. They were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word. That is, it's literally, I take, or I welcome, I give ear to. It, it implies a self-involvement to take a personal interest in the things spoken, to take hold of, to take up, to take upon oneself. I'm speaking to someone that maybe, and I don't know who is in Christ here today and who is not. If you have yet to trust Christ and you haven't taken this upon yourself to discover who the real Jesus is, I want to encourage you to do that today. Discover for yourself who he is. What are all the churches around the world meeting for on a Sunday? What, why is the Bible the printed book in world history? Take time to discover the real Jesus. What they received verbally, they perceived to be important. Well, what did they receive? They received the word. The word as it was spoken to them. The gospel of Jesus Christ. I love when you are, come across this statement in, in the Bible. It's in Revelation, and Jesus states it in, in a couple of places. He who has an ear, let him hear. <laughs> Have you got ears this morning? He who has an ear, let him hear. I, I'm a simple guy, right? I got ears. <laughs> I should hear. I should listen. When I come across that, I think, I better be paying attention here. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I, I think maybe the Lord wants me to listen. I mean, one day, these Bereans were going about their lives doing this and doing that and thinking this and thinking that, and then someone preaches the gospel to them. And now they've got to decide, what am I going to do with that? I've been going about my life. I, I've got this plan, and I've got that plan, and I've got this thought, and I've got that thought, and I've got my life arranged in this certain way, and I understand myself from this certain perspective, and I have this certain amount of whatever, and that certain amount of whatever, and then someone preaches the gospel to them. The gospel has a way of cutting through all that crud and getting right down to the bare where the rubber meets the road. To many at Thessalonica, that message was very jarring. So they are angry with Paul and Silas. To those, or many at Athens, the gospel was a joke. It was a joke. I've shared the gospel with people before and they, they laughed about it. But to those at Berea, it was good news of great joy. 
of great joy. Well, how did they receive it? It says they received it with great eagerness. That's promptness, forwardness of mind, zeal, or readiness. They didn't say, well, Paul's short, and he's balding, and I don't know if I can listen to that guy, and he doesn't really talk the way my best buddy talks. He's a better orator. He doesn't, they don't do any of that. They listen to the content of the message. And with, with forwardness of mind and zeal or readiness of mind, with great eagerness, they receive it. You know, so often people put off the spiritual for all kinds of silly reasons. You just keep putting it off and putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. We can do that in our Christian lives as well. The Lord is talking to us about something and talking to us about something and talking to us about something. And we feel that conviction and we feel that conviction and we keep putting it off and we keep putting it off, and we keep putting it off. We ought not to do that. At some point, you're going to have to do business with the Lord. It says, but these Bereans, they were more noble-minded. We can do that, right? We can take what we know from the Word of God and compare it with other scriptures and determine whether or not these things are so. That's what they did with it. They examined it daily. They took the gospel that was preached and they examined it daily. They inquired. They investigated. And what was the method of examination? They took what they heard and went to the Word. That rhymes. I like that. They took what they heard and they went to the Word. And what did they find? Or who did they find? Who did they encounter in the Old Testament? That's the Word they had. They didn't have the New Testament. They had the Old Testament. What might that have looked like? And this is really the center of this text at the center of this text, and it's at the center of this message, and it's all about encountering Jesus. Again, what an exciting thing to find Jesus on the pages of the Old Testament. They examined the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They did it daily. I can almost hear J. Vernon McGee saying, these things? What things? <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with him, but what things? Things, can, things concerning Jesus. The Jesus that Paul and Silas were preaching. I'd ask you to turn to Luke chapter 24 for a second. Jesus has been crucified, laid in a tomb, the tomb has been sealed and a guard has been placed and people have come in the morning and found the tomb empty and there are two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, 13. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking sad, and one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene. The things about Jesus, the Nazarene. 
who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people. And they go on to talk about he was how he was uh, put on trial and um, and died a sinner's death. He died on a cross. But in verse 27, if you just go down to verse 27, it says there, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. What a wonderful statement. Could you? I want. Okay, people talk about going to heaven. You want to talk to so-and-so? I want to talk to Cleopas. I want to talk to these guys. What things did Jesus tell you? What things? What things? In all the scriptures, he just expound, he just opened up the scriptures to them. He just opened up the scriptures to them and talked about himself. He told them things about himself, things about Jesus. If you were to do that in the Old Testament, and people people have done studies on that, and they and they say as many as three hundred, some as many as more than five hundred and fifty times, you'll come across references of Jesus as the Lord or Messiah in the Old Testament. It's as many as three hundred, some as many as five hundred and seventy-four times one guy found Jesus in the Old Testament. And and if and if you were to do that, and and Josh, could you bring up that first? image for us. We're going to kind of do that here just with seven. If you were to do that in a bullseye fashion, right? You've probably seen this before. Remember the first time I saw this kind of diagrammed out in a bullseye fashion. You just keep narrowing it down. In 300 closing circles, you'd come down to one person. You'd come down to the real Jesus. Next one, Josh. That's Berea, by the way. Some ruins from Berea. Could you imagine the joy that these Bereans felt as they listened to Paul and Silas preach about Jesus and then they went to the Old Testament and went, yeah, yeah, wow. It must have been just so exciting. Josh, can you make that thing go, that bullseye thing? It's in that, it's in that, what is it? Flash drive. <laughs> okay, you can picture it, right? My first circle. <laughs> so, my first circle. I'm, I'm just going to share some verses here. I, I can't do this 300 times. I can't do this. These are just, this is my first circle, okay? Psalm 2, all by itself, speaks of Jesus' preexistence his being the Son of God, and that He is the Anointed One, the Messiah. And I think you could discover a whole lot more about Jesus just in this one psalm, Psalm 2. It's not very long. It is beautiful. One of my favorite psalms. Isaiah 7.14 speaks of His virgin birth and His deity. The virgin shall be with child, and she shall give birth to a son, and His name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Speaks of His deity. Isaiah 9, 5 and 6. I don't have it up there. Isaiah, Isaiah 11, 1 is just one of the many places that speak of his genealogy. It says, Then a shoot will spring up from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And then it goes to describe what that 
sevenfold spirit of God is that will rest on him. And you read that and you think of maybe Paul and Silas were saying that uh, when, when John the Baptist baptized him, he came up out of the water and they saw the spirit coming down on him as a dove. Maybe they shared that with them. I, I don't know. But they, 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 their minds would go to Isaiah 11.1 1 pretty easily. Okay, the next circle, Josh. Isaiah 53. This would speak of his life as a suffering servant because, because when Jesus died, when Jesus was, just when Jesus was suffering, John the Baptist sent some disciples and said, go ask him if he's the one or if we should wait for someone else. Because if he's the one, this can't be what's going to happen. This, this can't be it. The Messiah is going to come and he's going to rule, he's going to reign. In fact, uh, many scholars believe that the Jews thought there'd be two Messiahs. There'd be one that would be a suffering, dying Messiah, and there'd be this one that would come and reign. They, they couldn't square the circle. They couldn't figure it out. Could you imagine their joy when, when, when Paul and Silas come and they preach Jesus as a suffering servant, and then they turn to Isaiah 53, and they're looking in the, their Old Testament, trying to find, is this the Messiah? And they maybe would read this, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him or be attracted to him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, the chastising for our sins, for, uh, the, chast the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Could you imagine if that was one of the places where they read in the Old Testament. They searched the scriptures daily. I'm pretty confident they'd have ended up in Isaiah 53. The next circle, Josh. Because he was crucified. Not only did he suffer, he was crucified. Psalm 50, or Isaiah 53 mentions that. Psalm 22 mentions this crucifixion. And the first sentence in uh, Psalm 22 is, My God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? Those are Jesus' dying words on the cross. Maybe Paul and Silas just said to them, do you know, you Brian guys, um, when Jesus was dying on the cross, do you know what he said? He said, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? And they went, what? That's Psalm 22. And if you read that psalm, it goes on to say, they have pierced my hands and my feet. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments amongst them and cast lots for my clothing. Sorry for the emotions. Those are the verses that saved me. Those are the verses God used to save me. Written hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born is the account of his crucifixion. Do you imagine the joy that they have? This, this Jesus that they're preaching. This Jesus that Paul and Silas are proclaiming. He's the real deal. He's the real Messiah. He's, he's God incarnate. We, we can trust him. We can believe on him. We can worship Him. We can honor Him. There'll be no shame in that. Imagine the joy they felt. 
in John, in John chapter 3 and verse 14 and 15, Jesus uh, is talking about the serpent that was lifted up in the wilderness. And that, he says, that serpent is, is typical of me. If you look at, look at that image back in the Old Testament, and then look at me up on the cross, everyone who looks to the Son of, Son of Man, who will be lifted up, will be saved. In Deuteronomy 18.15, the next circle, Josh. Deuteronomy 18.15, there was a prophet that was to come that was promised. And they, they probably would have looked at that. And Paul would have said, he's, he's the prophet that was to come. From among your brothers, one will come, a prophet. The next circle, Josh. Psalm 110, verse 4. He was the priest that has an everlasting priesthood. Jesus Christ is the one mediator between God and man. You can't go to anyone else. If you have yet to trust Christ, you can't come to me and I can save you. That isn't going to happen. You need Jesus. He's the one mediator between God and man. There's only one, and it's Jesus. There's no priest, there's no pope, there's no prophet, there's no modern-day guru that's going to save you. There's one mediator. That's what a priest is, right? A mediator between God and man. A prophet speaks God's words to man. A priest speaks on behalf of man to God. Jesus is the one mediator, mediator between God and man. You need Jesus. Do you imagine their joy when they read Psalm 10, verse 4? Next one, Josh. Psalm 110, verse 4. Oh, John 3, 14, 14 and 15. Thanks, Maria. Oh, Deuteronomy 18, 15. Yep. Um, in Psalm 45, verse 6, they had seen him as the eternal king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. When it says there, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. ever. A scepter of, righteous, of justice, rather, will be the scepter of your kingdom. Some deny the deity of Jesus Christ. That's to deny the real Jesus for who he is. Jesus is God. But the, writer of, the writers of the New Testament had no trouble proclaiming it. The writer of Hebrews says, but about the Son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. The writer of Hebrews writes that down. And when he writes that down, he's looking back at um, Psalm 45, verse 6, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. And he says, this is God speaking of the Son. This is God the Father speaking of the Son. People today are confused about the real Jesus, but the writers of the New Testament aren't. God isn't confused about Jesus. The Jews weren't confused about what Jesus was claiming when he said, I and the Father are one. The next one, Josh. Psalm 16.10 would speak of his resurrection from the dead. You will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Do you know in Acts, this, this verse is quoted at least twice in Acts 2.31 and Acts 13.35, and I'm sure that's something that Paul and Silas would have preached to them. And they'd look back in Psalm 16.10 and say, because they'd have been wondering, how, how could a suffering, dying Messiah be the Messiah? Well, he didn't see decay. He's alive. He's living. This is the real Jesus. When, when Paul writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 1, I'm going to get there. Romans 1, 1 through 4. Listen to what he says. 
Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand. Set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand. The gospel that Paul and Silas preached was promised beforehand. And when they looked back in the Old Testament, what did they find? They found that to be the case. Which God promised beforehand through the, his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. If Christ isn't raised, our faith is futile. It means nothing. I'm up here talking about nothing. And you're sitting there listening for no reason at all. But Christ is raised. He's risen indeed. He's alive. We have a risen, living Savior who is God. Who has created all things. All things were created by Him, for Him, and through Him. This is Jesus. This is the real Jesus. And the real Jesus was not confused about who he was or who he is either. Luke chapter 4. Um, there's, there's just seven of these. You could have 300 of these circles, and it all narrows down to one person. There's only Jesus. Amen. There's only one person. It's Jesus. Luke chapter 4. Jesus is not confused about who he is either. Luke 4, 18. Let me start at verse 17. We start at verse 16. Luke 4, 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and... As was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book. And he found the place where it was written. Because he anointed me, he's saying, I'm the Messiah. He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is not confused about who he is. This is the real Jesus. He is King of kings, Lord of lords, God of very God, the only Savior, the Prince of peace, the King of righteousness. This is Jesus. And, and, when, and when Paul and Silas come into Berea, and they share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And these Bereans are of no noble mind. They take what Paul and Silas proclaimed to them about this Jesus who suffered and died and was buried and rose again. And they go to the Old Testament and they say, yeah, yeah, we can see it. We can see it. We can see it. They don't use their own intellect. They don't use their own understanding of things. They use the word of God. And it confirms what Paul and Silas have preached to them. Jesus says in Luke 24, 27, and you search the scriptures because you think that in them, you have eternal life. It is those very scriptures that testify of me. In John 5.46, he says, If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. When you look in the Bible, when you look in your Bible, you should see Jesus. You should have an encounter with Jesus Christ. 
So what does it say happened to them? They received the word. They examined the word by looking into the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And it says in verse 12, therefore many of them believed. They believed. One of them might have been a man that's mentioned, a couple of guys that are mentioned in Acts 20, verse 4. I don't know, but it's the real Jesus whom they have believed, that many have believed. And um, they weren't just going to take someone else's word about it, hey? Um, we, we got to be a part of uh, Joyce's baptism just a week or so ago here. And when Patrick and I went to talk to her about that, she expressed that. She said, I, don't, I didn't want to take someone else's word for it. I needed to know if these things were so. I love that. That was me too. I didn't want to take someone. I wanted to know if these things were so. Are these things so? That's what the Bereans did. They needed to, they needed to test these things. They weren't going to just take Paul and Silas's word. They wanted to test it by the word of God. It says many, but not all. Some were in hot pursuit, traveling 40-some miles to, to, to persecute Paul and Silas. So just I'll close with these three thoughts that I began with. The church is to be active in the advance of the gospel because the Jesus you have believed in is the real Jesus, and that makes all the difference, doesn't it? We haven't followed a cleverly devised tale, Peter says, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. I wasn't an eyewitness of his majesty visually like Peter was, but in the word of God, we are. Hey? We are eyewitnesses of his majesty in that way. Second thing, we can be confident in the Jesus we preach. He is the real Jesus. The Old Testament confirms the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord. The real Jesus stands up to a thorough examination from the Old Testament, a thorough examination of any kind. And the third thing, that even strong opposition does not stop evangelistic efforts. Jesus is still building his church today. I don't know what you'll do with this message. I wanted to talk to you about having an encounter with the real Jesus. Maybe you've been walking with the Lord a long time and there's some distance there. You know, you know how fast you can get back? <laughs> like that. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and forgive us our, to forgive us our sins and to purify us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The road back is that fast. If you have yet to trust Christ, do you know, do you know how wide open his arms are to accept you. You simply need to believe on him. He's the real Jesus. He's the real deal. He's the Savior of the world. God sent his one and only Son that whoever, whosoever would believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Have. Present tense. Everlasting life. He did, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but that the world might be saved through him. The question is, will you be like a Berean and examine these things for yourself? Don't take my word for it. Look into the word of God. Let me close with a word of prayer. Father, I want to thank you for your word. Thank you for these Bereans who are more noble-minded. Help us to be that as well. Father, thank you that your word reveals to us who we really are, where we're truly at. Thank you that the road back to you is that fast, Lord. Um, we simply need to turn to you. Thank you that you are such a loving God and that it's demonstrated at the cross. Thank you for Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen.